Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. She came, she saw, she scarpered. I came into office at a time of great economic and international instability. I recognise, though, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. Today it's a full year since Liz Truss stood in Downing Street and promised to transform the UK's economy. For the better. I will take action this day and action every day to make it happen. But how did the chant of Liz for change turn to change for Liz? Today, her biographer on the twists the U-turns and the turmoil. Everyone I've spoken to has regret about what went on. And most of them are saying, how on earth could we have someone who we had such faith in? How did it end up so badly wrong? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, Liz Truss. House of Cards to House of Horrors. I'm James Seal. I'm political correspondent The Spectator and co-author of the Liz Truss biography, Out of the Blue, the inside story of her rise and fall with Harry Cole, who's political editor of The Sun. And we're going to go through that downfall in slow motion detail as it happened over 45 days or 49 days? 45 was when she resigned, 49 was when she left. Okay. But interestingly, before we get to that, you think that the seeds of her downfall were sown even before the clock started ticking. Well, it was partly due to how she became prime minister, which was this really long summer leadership contest. And it was clear from about mid-August that she was going to become the next conservative leader. And really the whole team, the inner core circle, decamped to Chevening, which is the foreign secretary's grace and favour country mansion. And we went along and interviewed Trust there. And it was bizarre. It was like something out of Bridgerton or some Regency (laughs) drama. It's this gorgeous, I think, 17th century house in the countryside where there were people sort of dotted around in twos or threes just waiting to take over and run the country, really. And I think in that those periods, some of the mistakes were bedded in. So there were a lot of people getting involved in policy and what was going to be in the money budget and what wasn't. And also the jobs that were being divvied up for number 10 as well. And I think the operation, which fell apart so spectacularly behind the scenes, was really conceived there. And in that Bridgerton-style setting, as, as you have it, did she seem at ease on top of things, like a woman with a mission? Mm. What was the... What was the vibe like? I think there was a real sense of confidence there, not just from Liz Truss, but also the people around her was a sense of they waited so long for this. If you Mm. think about, you know, Liz Truss was the longest continually serving minister, spent 10 years getting to the top. Mm. So they were really excited. This was their big moment in the sun. And when we interviewed her for the first interview for the book, she was completely at ease, very relaxed, funny. I think you saw a side to her which wasn't always evident on camera. But the danger is, of course, is perhaps that confidence did tip into complacency, as we saw a month later. And is part of that 
complacency, exemplified by the fact that she was willing to sit down to do a, an interview with some biographers before having even taken office. I think that every prime minister does get these books written about them when they enter office. And I suppose they always end on a kind of cliffhanger note because people always sort of pull their punches, don't they? Because mm. they write, you know, they're the coming thing, the rising star, etc. And they end on a note of, will they be great or not? And unfortunately for her, by the time we finished it, we literally stopped writing the day she left Downing Street and the conclusion was pretty clear. Gosh. Let's go through that then. Day one, 6th of September, Liz Truss arrives on Downing Street. And weirdly in that setting, it's not all sunshine for her. <laughs> so Boris Johnson left that morning, that Tuesday morning, bathed in this glorious sunshine, driving off. And then, unfortunately, when this truck flew back down from Balmoral, having met the monarch just shortly after midday, it really was into horrible weather. And so once they landed in London, they had to drive around and extend the journey because aides in number 10 were checking their weather apps and making sure that the Prime Minister didn't give a speech outside in the rain. She was insistent it was going to be outside on Downing Street. And they had to get the make sure the weather was right. So there was a sort of real delay and lots of cameras waiting. And so if you look at the pictures, you'll see some of the aides in the background on Downing Street look a little bedraggled because they've been waiting outside, waiting desperately for the Prime Minister to arrive. And it actually affected the content of her speech as well. Well, yes, I mean, there was a reference to riding out the storm. I am confident that together we can ride out the storm. We can rebuild our economy and we can become the modern, brilliant Britain that I know we can be. Which is sort of slightly ironic given how half the press corps had been trying to ride out the storm that afternoon. Mm. And she finally managed to give that speech, mm. five minutes in total. What was the promises, what was the tone that she set there? There was a deliberate decision to make it only about five minutes speech, I think to try and make it really a sense of action and dynamism. Churchill, of course, talked about action this day. Trust went a step further with action every day. I think Trust and those around her wanted to symbolise how after perhaps this kind of vacillation of elements of Boris Johnson's policy agenda, this was going to be a really determined government. And all those plans which were being cooked up in Chevening, this was the moment at which they could start to be put into action. What mm. kind of things did she immediately set about doing to get a grip on things? So the first thing was the energy crisis and bills were skyrocketing, quadrupling last autumn. And so Trust was considering putting together a big energy policy plan. And from talking to people, it seems that there was a kind of late stage escalation of that. She was like, right, we're going to go one big kind of bazooka measure and then we can put this to bed, shut it up for a year and move on to other issues of economic agenda. Yeah. And that really was what happened. So we got this energy price cap and it was what dominated the first two days in office. And especially dominated day three. So this mm. was now the 8th of September. She's on the floor of the House of Commons announcing that bazooka energy policy but even as she was doing that news started to trickle out especially amongst those sitting in the chamber of something a lot more consequential mm. i mean i was talking to someone who said that you know the, the queen you know in her final in the final appearance which she did which was swearing in the new prime minister was, seemed a little frail but no one thought anything imminent but then on the wednesday she'd taken a downturn in health then on thursday morning there came the news that the Queen was, was pretty ill before Truss had to go to the House and talk about the energy package. From the 1st of October, a typical household will pay no more than £2,500 per year for each of the next two years while we get the energy market back on track. So that was at the back of her mind. And then Nadim Zahawi came in with a note for both benches, the government and the opposition, warning them basically to to wind things up because the Queen was gravely ill. 
And then I think just after three o'clock that afternoon, she died. And the first thing her aides knew of it was when they saw Truss going and demanding a, a black dress. You know, these are the kind of mundane details, but she'd only just moved into number 10 and didn't have all her wardrobe. And so she needed a black dress because she was going to do the speech. And this news was kind of filtering out of you know, Westminster. I was getting messages from people within government looking quite grim. People were already looking for black ties to wear. And the news was broken shortly after six o'clock. And this trust became the first person to utter the words publicly. God save the king. What was happening behind the scenes there? Because it was only a couple of days earlier on that she'd fired the most senior civil mm. servant in the Treasury. There was a sort of mood music of we wanted to sort of bust through the civil service. And yet all of a sudden here they were having to rely on them. Having come in, I think that Trust really wanted to shake up what happened in Number 10. She wanted to shrink it. A lot of prime ministers do this. They come into Number 10 and they think that it's too leaky, it's inefficient, people don't work for them. And so she really instituted a new regime. Someone put it to me, anyone who'd worked for Michael Gove was immediately bulleted. Um, <laughs> they got rid of a lot of people. They moved a whole kind of tier of government out of Number 10 into the cabinet office. And Kwanzi Kwarteng was pretty insistent on the fact they wanted to get rid of Tom's Collett, permanent secretary of the Treasury, who was seen by some people around Trust as kind of the the embodiment of the Treasury orthodoxy and the blob way of thinking. So there was a lot of this stuff going on. But then when the Queen dies, it's Operation London Bridge kicks into action and suddenly politics shuts down for the best part of two weeks. And it's mm. the official mourning period. You can't do any policy announcements. Mm. No ministers are going on broadcast rounds. So it's suddenly the civil service machine dictating what's going on in the country. And everyone was at a bit of a loss. And I think that did feed into that sense of imperialism, uh, which Trust had had a whole whole winning streak. She had you know, an energy package. She got away with it. She won the Tory leadership. She had a whole series of things building up. And I think that fueled some of the overexcitement in the mini budget. Which happened on day 17 after that period of mornings. Mm. This is Friday the 23rd of September. Prime is keen to get back to business. Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng delivers a budget. This was the defining event of the premiership, wasn't it? How this unravelled. I think you need to step back a second. Remember that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng had entered Parliament on the same day in 2010. They'd been long-standing allies. They'd worked together on pamphlets at the free market think tank, the IEA. They talked about this for years. They lived near each other in Greenwich. They'd gone plotting, walking around Greenwich Common, what they would do if they ever got it to the top. And now they finally get their chance. Mm. And they blow it. Talking to people involved, it was a sense of they were trying to get away with everything they could so it's like let's get the childcare reforms in can we talk about anything about planning we should have investment zones out of different people free ports all being added into this mini budget and one of the defining moments of that was when they presented it as a rabbit out the hat was the 45p tax cut but I'm not going to cut the additional rate of tax today Mr Speaker I'm going to abolish it altogether for me the top rate of income tax at the 45% rate paid on any uh, earnings on over £150,000, that will be scrapped. A big tax cut for people who earn, let's be honest, a lot of money. And yes. this is obviously proved to be the politically most unpopular measure of the budget, but there were other things involved as well about you know the energy price cap costs, etc. But the 45p tax cut really provoked a reaction. And one Tory MP was heard exclaiming, Jesus Christ, from the press gallery. And you'd think that with a period of national mourning, there's lots of time to get this work done, mm. almost under the cover of that, because it's not like you're having to be doing announcements and, and the usual business of public government during the day because of the impending funeral. But is there a sense 
that actually all of that actually threw things off course and it meant that things couldn't happen as they normally would. Yes. First of all, the Prime Minister herself was going around the country doing national church services in Scotland and Wales, accompanying the King, doing a lot of rigmarole, things that don't play to her natural strengths. She herself was quite distracted by that. Also, just the business of government was shaken. And I think perhaps also there was a mood. I remember going in that night, I think, the day the Queen died, and seeing one of Truss's ministers was crying in the toilets of Parliament. They were just so upset. And people were really shaken. And Westminster, of course, is not just the political capital of the nation, it is the ceremonial heart. And there are so many mm. people who are involved in some way with the monarch. And people were not, I don't think, prepared for the kind of shock or what the mini-budget was going to be. And yeah. typically what happens is you get politicians who brief really hard and then actually when they deliver something it seems sensible and normal. This was the opposite. This was a sense of a country kind of feeling its way around how much this energy package is going to cost, getting over the, the Queen's death and suddenly, bam, we're going to enter a cost living yeah. crisis and cut the whole rate of tax. And so it was a real sense of shock, I think. And then the obvious market reaction to that, mm. which played out and not being in control of events was really a kind of sense I picked up around Westminster at that time. It, incredibly, if it wasn't incredible enough that, that you were able to interview Liz Truss shortly before she actually took office. Mm. The weekend after that budget, as, as all of this madness was happening, you had a chance to sit down with her again. Yeah. What on earth was she like there? So we went and saw her the day after the mini-budget on the Saturday, and it was surreal. So Harry and I were sitting outside Chevening because Chequers was being redone at that point, so outside Chevening again. Harry Cole, political editor of the Sunday. Yeah, my co-author. And uh, we suddenly see the gates open, and what that's going on and and the Prime Minister was there with her family and she was oh I'm just off to go and get coffee and it was just a real sight to see given how you know we had our phones up before us and could see what had been happening to the, the pound overnight just looking at the pounds and it is it's ticking every second and it's it's ticking lower it is quite dramatic that is a sign of investors out there being worried about sterling and that's basically a proxy for saying them being worried about the UK economy and pulling money out. And we then went and interviewed her and she was just so calm. She was just very relaxed. And I don't think they were prepared for what happened, first of all, on the Sunday when Quasi Quartan went out and said there was more to come. There's more to come. We've only been here 19 days. I want to see uh, over the next uh, year people retain more of their income. And thereafter, the reaction on the, the Monday in the Asian markets. Dominic O'Connell, our business correspondent, is here. You hear a bit early, Dom. The news is so bad. What, what's going on? Uh, well, the pound fell to $1.03 in Asian markets overnight. That is the lowest it has been certainly since March 1985. And was that confidence, do you think, down to a kind of delusion or just a combative confidence that she could stay the course and this would turn out OK? I think a bit of both. I think that we forget sometimes how cut off prime ministers can be at the top of government. And I think it really took a week or so, best part of a week for it all to sink in, just how badly it mm. was going down. She'd been riding high, written off a lot in her career before. If you look at episodes, she'd been mocked over things like the Port Market speech in 2014. Yeah. She'd been written off at the Treasury in 2017. Now she's the master of all she surveyed. She's the prime minister. And it was a sense of, I think... Oh, there's a lot of complaining and some jitters, etc. But we can ride out mm. through this. And at that point, it wasn't immediately clear, but there was a sense, perhaps, that they weren't kind of across what the market reaction was going to be and the political reaction too. At what point in the days after that do you think that the severity of it hit home? Because after that, we had 
well, the pound collapsing, poll ratings getting worse, that universally agreed disastrous round of BBC local radio interviews. No one can deny you enter Downing Street with a difficult job on your hands, but you've made the situation worse so far, haven't you? Since Friday, since your Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget, the pound has dropped to a record low, the IMF has said that you should reevaluate your policies and the Bank of England has had to spend £65 billion to prop up the markets because of what they describe as a material risk. Where have you been? What did people around her make of that round of interviews? Uh, I think most of them would admit that Liz Truss has never been the most natural a communicator and so it was more a case of just getting through them but I do think there were questions to be asked there afterwards about the communications of all of this in terms of explaining the policy, mm. how that had come across. And I know that she was pretty critical of Adam Jones, who was our director of communications, about that. About the decision to do it. Yeah, and so policy was pointing at comms already and comms was blaming policy already. We are halfway through the Prime Minister Liz Truss memorial calendar. If you're keeping count in a moment, we'll go to 23 days into her premiership and the infighting in number 10 and the all-out mutiny at the Birmingham Party Conference. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. James, we're powering through that the 49 days of Liz Truss. We're on day 26 now. This is Sunday, the 2nd of October, for those with their diaries in front of them. Party conference. They all seem to have a brave face on them. But what was the mood like as she actually got to Birmingham for what should have been on paper, a firming up on her position, a, a rousing call for the party to back her? So I've been going to Conservative Party conferences for about seven or eight years, and this was exceptional. I think that there was... A mood of sulphur in the air. It had been teed up, of course, by that Sunday interview she did on Laura Koonsberg's show and sitting just a few yards away was Michael Gove. And Koonsberg turns to Gove after doing the interview and says, oh, Michael, what do you think of this? And he just absolutely goes to town on her. I think that there is uh, an inadequate realisation at the top of government of the scale of change required. Using borrowed money to fund tax cuts. That is not Conservative. Us hacks are arriving in Birmingham and we're listening to all of this stuff and already the scene is set. And I remember one farcical moment where Michael Gove basically was doing about 10 events. You know, he was definitely on manoeuvres at that conference mm. and he was speaking in one room. And I think next door was Jacob Rees-Mogg, who was in the government to the business secretary. And they were both criticising each other implicitly or explicitly. And journalists were reading out quotes. Or well, Michael says this about and Jacob says this about. And it basically was a Tory party just tearing itself apart. So already the mood was very uncertain. And I remember going along to a midnight event with Penny Morton and everyone kind of had a sort of sense of black humour. And she said, well, what have we learnt from conference so far? What have we learnt so far in conference? We've learnt that our policies are great, but our cults is shit. <laughs> 
And there was then thereafter 10 seconds of laughter and whooping and clapping. This is Tory activists. But around that point, I was then invited up to the party chairman has hosted these drinks every conference. And I was there having these drinks with half the cabinet was there, lots of spads, etc. What this kind of drinks? Uh, champagne. Of course. Oh, <laughs> and I hear this commotion and I go outside and it's a proper back and forth along the corridor of the top floor of the Hyatt between my co-author, Harry, and Adam Jones, who's director of comms. And this is sort of middle of the night or late This evening? is 20 past 12 on okay. the first night of the Conservative Party conference. And the room where we're going around this had summoned Quasi and said, we've got to kill the 45p tax cut, got to get rid of it. And Harry's going, we're going to run it now, unless you give me a denial on the record. Oh, I can't possibly, you know, I'm all measures under consideration. He's sort of stumbling and umming and erring, quite robotic-like. And they sort of chase each other down the corridor to the lift. Adam tries to get in the lift. Harry's there trying to put his foot in the door. This is basically... You know, it for the government because once the story goes, it's going to really kill the, the credibility. The doors close, Harry presses send and detonates the story. And one cabinet minister puts down their glass, says, Thanks for that, you've ruined my conference, and walks off into the night. And that really set the stage for the next day when Kwatang had to give the speech at conference. And it all went to pot, really, because at that point, they turned on one of the major measures. Even the LGBT Tories at a disco turned at her on her. Yeah. So the previous year, she'd been there, the toast of the evening. She had just been made foreign secretary, September 2021. She was dancing to Beyonce. Everyone loved it. That was when she considered being a real rising star and probably one of the next favourites to take over from Boris. And a year on, the final night on Tuesday night, Things Can Only Get Better came on the new Labour anthem and the whole club cheered ironically. And one spad turned to me and said, Things Can Only Get Better. And like, no, they fucking won't. And they did not. And outside, I just saw there was a group of Conservative MPs and they opened up a copy of that day's first edition of Telegraph and just started laughing at a photo of Liz and that. It was really a sense of, of fatalism, defeat and just black humour through it all. The clock ticks on just over 10 days later, day 38, Friday the 14th of October. All those arguments about, about the dropping of the cut to the 45p tax rate continue and suddenly the Chancellor is sacked. What was going on behind the scenes as that happened? Because it did seem to come like a bolt from the blue. So I think, first of all, there was some residual anger over Kwarteng's comments about more to come, which were really unhelpful. The conference ends on the Wednesday Two days later, the OBR sends an email to the Treasury warning them of this huge 70 billion black hole. Because of the tax cuts and, and spending pro- yeah, promises. Because, that and because of the, yeah, yeah and, and the energy price gap. And then at the beginning of the week, uh, Kwarteng flies out to Washington to be at the IMF. Hmm. And normally these things are just glad handling and etc. And this time it was a lot of interventions and being embarrassed by foreign ministers. But at home on the Wednesday and Thursday, trusts... Uh, it was in meetings and people around her in meetings with the top senior civil servants who are warning her. We are getting warnings that Britain's debt is about to start being handled as like a third world country. Well, credibility is going to be shot for 20, 30 years. We've got this black hole, 70 billion black hole. We've got to get rid of some of these tax cuts. The corporation tax cut was, I think, worth about 25 billion or so. That was then briefed that they were going to U-turn on that. And that dropped on the Wednesday papers, I think, for the Thursday morning. And as a result of that, they had to go along with it because the markets had then rallied on the back of that. Hmm. And so they thought, well, if we deny that this is going to be happening, mm-hmm. we therefore are going to lose all our credibility. And so they had to go along with the tax cuts. And once the tax cuts are gone, you think you've got to get rid of the Chancellor. 
How was that decision communicated? So Guadeng was summoned back and he came back on the Friday morning. And there was a debate within his team, should he go back or not? One of his aides pointed out that there's only I think, a couple of flights going out of DC. They'd have to tell the journalists they were with and therefore the speculation would immediately start. Are they being summoned back to be sacked? Mm. And 6,000 people are tracking this flight, most of them all in Westminster. I think it's the world's most tracked flight at that point. He arrives back, touches down early Friday morning. And as he's driving back in his ministerial Jaguar, Steve Swinford from the Times tweets that he's to be sacked. And one of Kwarteng's spads hands the phone over to him and there's a sort of pause of about a minute. And, well, that's that then. So he knows he's about to be sacked. He drives back up to Downing Street, goes in for a 20-minute long meeting with Liz Truss. And he points it, look, you get rid of me, they're going to come for you next. And she goes, quasi, they're already coming for me. And... That ended a decade-long alliance. And there was this weird bit thereafter. I was talking to someone who said that and quite like sort of hung around the building for a bit longer, trying to make small talk to people, and it was just really rather bizarre. Well, almost for like old times' sake. Yeah, sort of, and just sort of what happens next. And I'm sure as an economic historian, being sacked after less than 40 days would have really hit him hard. And I think it's perhaps noticeable that he's been more like forthcoming about the mistakes made in the interviews he's done since. And I said, um, you know, we should slow down. Slow down. And what did she say? And she said, well, I've only got two years. And I said, you'll have two months if you carry on like this. And that's, I'm afraid, what happened. We then publicly had Liz Truss's explanation for this in a press conference. Good afternoon. My conviction that this country needs to go for growth is rooted in my personal experience. Which was notable because... Well, it was very short. Yeah, and <laughs> eight minutes. Yeah, and also there seemed to be lots of concern from some of the journalists there that she seemed um, a bit rattled. Mm. Yes, it wasn't the most assured of media performances. She was meant to be there to explain what happened. I'm not first of all not sure how much you could really explain away, but also there's not a forum that's ever really appealed to her. I think with her is that it clearly had gone wrong. To her, the, the merits of tax cuts were self-evident. And she only gave four questions. And there were these kind of pauses in between where she was looking for who she should pick. Uh, just, Harry Cole. And so for people watching and for investors and you know, people with mortgages, they were looking for reassurance. It was none of that. And the, the journalists walked away annoyed and baffled that they'd had so little time to actually question her. Thank you very much, everybody. Prime Minister, Aren't you going to say sorry? And that was, of course, a press conference in the day when she announced that Jeremy Hunt, a person she decried during the Tory leadership race, was going to be Kwarteng's replacement. It lasted a few more days. <laughs> It lasted about, I think, what, five days from that. So day 43 now, Wednesday, the 19th of October, the beginning of the of the collapse. They had this war room going on at number 10 and they'd been really trying to just get through it day by day. But the Wednesday was when it all fell apart. There were kind of three incidents. The first of all, it started when the number 10 team really turned on each other and that spilled out publicly. This was about a briefing that ended up in the Sunday Times describing Sajid Javid as shit. Well, that led to the suspension of one of her top aides, Jason Stein, and the finger of blame was pointed at one of his colleagues, Deputy Chief Staff Ruth Porter. So the number 10 team was feuding, and this was just 4pm cues. Mm. That afternoon, Suella Braverman quits, sacked, 
It depends who you talk to about this incident, but really it was because she'd sent ministerial documents to an MP on a, on a non-classified server. And there'd been tension behind the scenes for a long time before this. And so she then goes that afternoon, you think, my God, the Home Secretary's gone. She was serving Home Secretary since 1834. And then, really, this teases up for the main drama that <laughs> evening. This whole affair is inexcusable. It, it is just... It is a pitiful reflection on the Conservative Parliamentary Party at every level. And Labour Party had an opposition day motion, very cleverly decided to do it about fracking. In a leadership race, Liz Truss said she'd lift the ban on fracking. The 2019 manifesto said we'd keep the ban on fracking. And so Tory MPs were caught between their manifesto and their leader. And it really led to... MPs not being sure if it was a confidence vote or not. The whip's office is an absolute chaos. People in the voting lobbies, there were accusations of manhandling. To all intents and purposes, one of them, to my mind anyway, that's, this is what it looked like to me, was basically pushed or pulled through into the division lobby. And the people weren't sure if the chief whip was in a job or not. And that was the night really she began to think about resignation. And when you say confidence vote, that's important because it's a, if you vote against the government on this, you will lose the whip. Yeah, lose the whip and bring down the government. And so people were then saying, if we lose the vote, do we have a general election? And it's interesting that actually all these things on that day are sort of nothing really to do with all the drama we were talking about, about the tax cutting agenda and mm. the confidence in the markets. This was about briefings about who said what, about a minister. It's about the Home Secretary sending documents to someone that she might not have done and the vote about fracking. But also a lot of this does come back to those assumptions baked in before she became Prime Minister. So Suella Braffman got the Home Secretaryship because she cut a deal in the leadership race. Mm. The number 10 team never got the jobs they properly wanted. It wasn't sorted out who was in charge in the hierarchy. So that was before she became prime minister. And the fracking vote also, I think, showed perhaps the wider tensions where she made a lot of promises during that race and how many of them were actually feasible. The whip's office, she didn't get the person she wanted as chief whip. But you're right. And it was a, it comes down to basic questions around patience and temperament and credibility. Once the credibility was lost, her time was up. And the fury from the whips on this blew out publicly somewhat. Yeah, she tried to sack Wendy Morton as chief whip. The whip's office said, if you get rid of Wendy, we're all gone. And that was it. You can't function without a whole whip's office. Is it true that Craig Whitaker shouted, I am fucking furious and I don't give a fuck anymore? I've heard it from onlookers, so I believe so. So Liz Truss gets through this day, <laughs> that was all one day, and returns to the flat. Do we know what's going through her head? She meant evening. to have a meeting with Jeremy Hunt to discuss the economic situation. Of course. And remember, of course, that economics is at the forefront of the mind because they've had all these warnings and mm. they're really concerned about market credibility right now. She cancels that meeting. She goes upstairs, pulls out a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc and has a discussion with her husband, Hugh. They live up in the number 10 flat here and really sort of mulling it over. I think she spoke to a couple of aides and was discussing what the future situation would be. Overnight, Graham Brady, who's chairman of the 1922 committee, also gets a load of messages and saying it's time to go and the sort of convergence of what the party was saying with what the Prime Minister was thinking meant that she decided to go the next morning This is day 44 the 20th of October did she decide that morning we think yeah yeah what was the thinking behind her remarks I think it was very much meant to be a sort of contrast with someone like Theresa May who obviously when she quit there were those tears welling up and I think that has never been a publicly emotional sort of person. It really was just a very brief uh, minute and a half long statement. We delivered on energy bills and on cutting national insurance. And we set out a vision for a low-tax, high-growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. 
I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. And she went so quickly that the markings on the floor from her original speech six weeks previously was still there when she came out to deliver that farewell speech. Well, as in like the little bits of tape on this is where yeah. the podium should go. You can see it, yeah. And so, yeah, so she quits on the Thursday and then there's a leadership contest that weekend and then she goes the following Tuesday. And really the last few days, oh, it's just like a sort of a funereal atmosphere, really, where they're just doing the basic stuff. But what does she do? What are the ba- What is the basic stuff? So it's just saying, writing thank you notes, handover <laughs> notes from, yeah, a few weeks ago, these guys had just beaten the Rishi Sunak team. Now yeah. they've got to write notes saying good luck and all this kind of stuff. And so it was just things about, you know, had a leaving party that weekend at Checkers and they were saying their goodbyes and it was just a few phone calls. A lot of the phone calls to world leaders had to be cancelled because, of course, why would you talk to someone who's leaving in five days' yeah. time? They had a final photo of the cabinet and that was it. She then drove off into history, the shortest serving prime minister, beating George Canning's record by 70 days. Not in a ministerial car. That's the sort of final humiliation. Well, this is the thing. She got an hour before an appointment with the king. They realised at that point, oh my gosh, because she's no longer a minister. So the ministerial cars and for her family were able to drive her there to the palace, but then alternative transport had to be arranged to take her back home thereafter. Uber uh, looks. Yeah. <laughs> well, it just shows you how one minute you're the prime minister of a nuclear power and the next you're a bench MP heading back to Greenwich. You'll have spoken to lots of people since who were close to the action as all of this fell apart and and this just went off into the sunset. How do they reflect on what happened? Most of them don't really want to talk about it. I see. Uh, I think that there's a sense of embarrassment. One of them I remember walking with on the day she resigned around St. James's Park and they said to me it was was hubris followed by nemesis. And I think there is a sense of, of they got it wrong. I think everyone I've spoken to has regret about that and what went on. And actually, I think most of them are saying, how on earth could we have someone who we had such faith in? How did it end up so badly wrong? Liz Truss herself, I think, is interesting. She, she's been a bit less unapologetic. I've had a lot of people get in touch with me saying, you know, to varying degrees, what, what you were doing, you were trying to do the right thing. A lot of her supporters think that she will ultimately be proven right in terms of her diagnosis, if not the way in which she went about administering the medicine. And I think that for now, perhaps the party isn't ready to have that conversation this side of an election, but it'll be interesting to see what happens in opposition. Mm. I mean, as I ask this, I can already hear people with mortgages ripping their headphones off it in fury. But is it clear what her legacy is? I think for her, the legacy will be what her successors do, which is that Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer now have both tried to define themselves against what she did, mm. which is that boring is back, as Michael Gove said. People will not be able to, I think, try and operate in the way she did and I think there was going to be a real sense of fiscal credibility being everything having seen that when you lose that it's gone people I think the, the treasury orthodoxy I think will be assured for the medium term she'll be in the next parliament and I think she'll be a voice in the next parliament and whether she'll be listened to or not is the key question You have been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Luke Jones, and my guest, political correspondent for The Spectator and co-author of Out of the Blue, the inside story of the unexpected rise and rapid fall of Liz Truss, James Heal. If you're a subscriber, you can read James's in-depth, day-by-day breakdown of Liz Truss's premierships 
well, breakdown at thetimes.co.uk. The producer was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. A lovely, glowing review will help other people find us. So do leave one wherever you're listening to this. And Manveen will personally come and shake your hand. Goodbye. <laughs>